Hey everyone, just before we get into this episode, I just want to remind you all to sign up to the mailing list for the Podcases app that's coming soon. We take you through interesting patient cases from start to finish and you get to reinforce your knowledge with an interactive quiz and see how you're doing on a live scoreboard. Sign up now on scrubbedin.co.uk to get notified when we go live. Now let's get back to the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. Today we're joined by an amazing guest who we've been waiting for a while to sit down and talk with. We have with us joining today Professor Nizam Mahmood, who is a professor of transplant surgery. He is legendary in the sphere, well-renowned. He is the individual who performed the first robotic kidney transplant in the UK and has published more than 70 publications in leading journals, including The Lancet and the American Journal of Transplantation. Thank you so much, Professor, for taking the time out and kind of sitting down with us. We have so many questions and we just want to hear your story um, up until present day. How are you? Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm well, it's, it's very nice to join you. No worries. So we've kind of given everyone an insight. You were the first surgeon to perform the robotic transplant in the UK. Um, but take us all the way to the very beginning, when it all started, when you thought, do you know what, I want to go to med school, I want to become a doctor, um, if you don't mind sharing that journey with us. Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that takes us right back to 1980. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I applied uh, for medical school um, and I got rejected. I got rejected by a total of nine medical schools at, at the end of my A-levels. Um, so I left school with no place in medical school, but a, but a place to work uh, as a teacher in a rural area in Kenya for a year. Mm-hmm. So, so I went out to Kenya and taught in a, in a very basic setting uh, for a year. And, um, and I wasn't really sure if, if I was going to be able to continue that journey. Um, and in fact, what happened um, during that year was uh, on New Year's Eve in, in Nairobi, uh, mm-hmm. there was a bomb in, in one of the hotels, which was quite close to where a group of us were staying. And okay. um, we heard the explosion, went down uh, to see what had happened. And the building was... Uh, partially collapsed it was on fire uh, and myself and, and another one of the volunteers who's also subsequently become a doctor um, the two of us spent um, most of the night uh, helping out with with a number of other people who sort of come from the surrounding area pulling people out of the rubble and trying to administer the first aid that we could um, it was quite shocking for an 18 year old Um, but at the end of that evening um, I remember the two of us turning to each other and saying we definitely need to be doctors Um, and that was the point at which I really decided uh, I wanted to have a career in medicine so uh, I wrote to St Andrews University who'd rejected me the first time around and said how dare you reject me? And uh, they wrote back a very nice letter saying, okay, you're in. So uh, I, I, uh, so I took up a place in St. Andrews um, 
and that was three years of, of uh, preclinical and then three years at Glasgow University doing, uh, doing clinical medicine. Uh, and I qualified from there in, uh, in 1987. Um, and then from there, <clears throat> from there um, I'd really decided I wanted to be either a, a general practitioner or a psychiatrist. Um, mm -hmm. But I thought uh, I'd spend some time in accident and emergency because that would be useful for general practice. And then I thought I'll do six months as a surgical SHO that might be useful as well. And it was there that I really fell in love with surgery and decided um, that that's what I wanted to do. Um, although I was, I think it's fair to say it wasn't really until I became a consultant that I <laughs> I decided <laughs> I definitely wasn't going to be a GP all the way along. And the reason for that is because I, I still think general practice is is real medicine. It's the toughest branch of medicine in my view. Um, you have to make decisions about people uh, without all the facilities and the backup that you have in hospitals. Um, you might be examining someone in, in their front room with poor lighting on their sofa, and you've got to make a decision about what to do. And also I think you are having to deal with people's social and personal and psychological problems. Uh, yeah. And to me, that's a huge part of, of any branch of clinical medicine. Um, and that's a big challenge in general practice. But nevertheless, I, I decided to continue in surgery. Um, uh, but the, the bug for working overseas um, was still there. I'd been to work in refugee camps in Sudan twice while I was a medical student. Um, mm -hmm. And then in Nicaragua while I was still a, a medical student. Um, at that time, the, uh, the war was going on. Uh, the Sandinistas were in power and the Contra uh, were fighting them. Uh, and I, I spent a summer up in the hills working in primary care. Um, and in, uh, in 1989, um, having left uh, my surgical job, I decided that I would like to go to South America. And I spent mm -hmm. nine months in Chile, um, mm -hmm. attached to a surgical department in a hospital um, and really seeing a completely different aspect of surgery where uh, you would sometimes find two patients to a bed. Um, people were having to do pretty major operations with minimal facilities. Um, and that was, a, that was also an eye-opening experience. Um, while I was there, I remember traveling to Bolivia um, and visiting some, some friends there. And there was a, um, a center in Bolivia, which was a medical center, an educational center, um, and, a, and a center of social support. And it just turned out that I had turned up when they were having their annual meeting um, mm -hmm. and so there were about a hundred of the people who worked there all crammed in to to this hall they were nearly all local bolivians and i remember uh, the person who was in charge uh, giving a, a talk and saying to people you you volunteer for this for this operation 
and you're trying to help people in rural Bolivia and it behooves you to, um, to, to do your job not just as well as anybody would working in, in the private sector or working in a, in a big hospital or, or a university, but actually to do it better. You should be yeah. expert at what you do and you should work at least as hard as, as they do mm. uh, because the people that you're working for really need you. And that really stuck with me. Um, and I decided that what I needed to do was come back to the UK and get a very good surgical training um, to make myself uh, good at, at what I did and that I could potentially use that um, whether I worked overseas or, or whether I worked in the UK. So, so that's what I did. I came back in uh, 1990 um, and uh, was very lucky to, to, to get a job in Glasgow uh, as a surgical registrar uh, and started my training there. Professor, at what point in your career did you kind of double down and think, I want to pursue transplant surgery or were you kind of first it's amazing I think you're the first surgeon that didn't want to be a surgeon way before med school and you're the only surgeon that I know that still respects GP as a specialty <laughs> and doesn't feel they're beneath them at what point did you feel transplant surgery is the one for me um, what was the thought process behind that yeah tran transplantation came along uh, much later I am um... I um, did a few years of general surgery and vascular surgery, liked vascular surgery, uh, and decided that I wanted to do some research in the vascular surgical unit. My research was on uh, perioperative cardiac events, so it had a slightly medical flavor. Mm. Um, while I was waiting for the grant to come through for that, I actually got called by um, Medical Aid for Palestinians and they asked did I want to go to Lebanon um, and at that time it was it was not long after the hostages had been released and I think they kind of thought I sounded a bit Muslim and maybe I wouldn't get <laughs> locked up so <laughs> I went out to uh, to to uh, Lebanon and I spent six months um, working in, in one of the camps in southern Lebanon um, in surgery, helping to get the surgical program there off the ground, um, which was a, an absolutely fantastic experience working with local surgeons um, and setting up the service. Uh, I came back and carried on with a combination of general and vascular surgery, spent more and more time in the vascular unit. Mm. And it was really pretty much at the end of my training um, that uh, that I thought about transplantation um, and I remember meeting in the street uh, one of my medical school colleagues who was working in the transplant unit um, and we had a little chat about transplantation and he said yeah you should just come and uh, spend a year um, and I've never really forgiven him because I said to him, yeah, but our transplant surgeons up all the time. But no, no, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't quite telling the truth. But anyway, I, I, I went, spent a year in, in transplant and absolutely loved it. I, yeah. I think, um, 
what uh, what what really attracted me and still attracts me to transplantation is that it's a specialty that combines so much. You need surgical skill, um, and that's quite critical because if you put a transplant in and one of your stitches isn't quite right and uh, the vessels thrombose, then there's a high chance that you're going to lose that transplant. It's um, uh, the opportunities to go back and fix it are fairly limited. Um, so you, you need to be on top of your game uh, technically. But in addition to that, there, there are so many other things. There's the immunology of it, and there is a huge uh, opportunity to do basic science research, to apply that clinically, and to really make a difference in doing that. Um, there's the ethics. Um, so constantly we, we find ourselves struggling with ethical decisions. And I find that very interesting thinking about those details. Yeah. Um, we work very much as a team. So people often say it takes about 60 people uh, for one transplant to happen um, wow. because there are various teams retrieving the organ, coordinators who are involved, lab people who are involved, um, as well as the surgical team and as well as the nephrological team. So there's a huge team working together and that's quite a, an interesting and, and relatively uncommon way of practicing medicine. So all of those things I found attractive. Um, but, but I think probably above everything else, we're seeing the huge difference that you can make to people's lives very, very quickly. Um, and I always tell the juniors that I think it's a huge privilege, particularly if we're operating on living donors. So someone's giving their kidney um, and they may be giving it to their partner, to their parents, to their children. Um, and for both people um, involved, both the donor and the recipient, that is probably the most significant day of their lives. Um, it, 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 it's a critical, critical time for them. And, and we have the privilege of facilitating that. And at the end of the day, you go home, um, you've got a working kidney transplant in the recipient, you've got two really happy people, um, and you've, you've revolutionized the quality of their life. Um, and that's something which doesn't really pale with time. That's something which still um, gives me a kick every time I do it. And we have patients who, you know, I have patients I see in the clinic who um, I've been following up for over a decade now, some of them. Um, and you get to know the patients, you establish a relationship with them. Uh, and that's really, really attractive. So I think it's a fantastic specialty. How have you found in terms of the donor program in this country? I know it's slightly picking up traction, but has that kind of affected you and your work adversely? Um, in the beginning when perhaps donating or donor kidneys weren't as readily available. How did you kind of deal with that during those moments of your career? Yeah, I mean, for, for those people who don't know, there's, there's two basic types of donor. There's a deceased donor and a living donor, and the living donor operations are planned. Um, the deceased donors can happen anytime, often out of hours. Um, and our emergency workload comprises probably over 50% of, of our workload overall. Um, over the last 10 years or so, 
Um, the UK has been incredibly successful in increasing the number of deceased donors and there's been a variety of ways in which it's done that. Um, and we've had a 50% rise in those, um, in those transplants. Um, we used to always start our presentations at congresses with a slide which showed the waiting list rising year on year. And actually over the last few years, um, the waiting list has been falling and falling and falling. And, and that's, that's just fantastic to see. Yeah. Um, so that's been a huge success. And, and you know, other countries have had some success, but I think in the UK it really stands out as, as, a, as a fantastic achievement. And in addition to that, we have something called the kidney sharing scheme. So for living donors where um, a kidney can't go directly to, to their intended recipient um, for a variety of immunological reasons, they can go into the sharing scheme and kidneys are swapped between pairs. And that's been incredibly successful with hundreds of transplants um, happening through that. Um, uh, which has is, which is really helped those people. And that, again, that stands out as an achievement of the UK. So I think for us, working um, on, on, the, on the front line, so to speak, um, it's been challenging, um, not just for surgeons, but, but for all the people in the team, because the workload has gone up quite dramatically. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say the resource has not increased in proportion um, to that. So everybody is working harder. The clinics are full or were before COVID. Um, we're doing far more operations and we're getting called far more at night. So that's been a yeah. challenge um, and that's difficult. I would say to people who are thinking, well, transplantation sounds like a, an interesting career, but I'm not really interested in working around the clock. I think one thing um, that I would say about transplantation is that it does lend itself to, um, to different ways of working in the way that, um, that, that other surgical specialties often don't. So in most transplant units, patients are shared. Um, when you're on call, you deal with somebody who might have been seen by a different surgeon in the clinic and listed um, you do their transplant and it might well be a different surgeon who's following them up on the ward and what that means is part-time working for example is um is not uh, too difficult to arrange and indeed for a large part of my career until a few years ago till about five years ago um i actually worked uh, effectively part-time clinically um, and that was for family reasons. Uh, I had a daughter in Spain and I used to spend time over there uh, on a regular basis of every couple of weeks. Um, so you can have a family and do transplantation. Uh, you can potentially organize your, your job um, to yeah. suit the needs of your lifestyle. P Professor, what does a, a week in your life look like right now in this moment of time? Uh, well, it, at the moment is very diff different from what it was back in, say, February yeah. before COVID started. Um, so would you like me to go back to pre- Yeah, let's say pre-COVID and COVID just to see how COVID has affected your sort of 
um, specialty? Yeah, so so pre-COVID, um, all the units around the country have slightly different ways of working, but, but in our unit, um, effectively, what we would do is rotate through various parts of the specialty, if you like. So I might have a week where I would be on the wards dealing with emergencies. So that would be during the day, any patients that came in for an emergency transplant or came in with any other urgent problems, I'd be dealing with them and looking at after them on the ward along with a nephrologist. And then in the, at night, uh, a different surgeon would take over uh, and deal with anything overnight. Um, so I might rotate through that. that, that's on a one in 10 basis. I would spend one in five weeks at um, the children's hospitals uh, doing uh, pediatric work, so clinics and lists. Um, uh, I might have a week where I'd be doing a combination of clinics um, and uh, operating, which could be vascular access work or it could be elective transplants. Um, and tied in with that, of course, is, is research time um, and teaching time uh, for PhD students, for medical students um, and for juniors for whom I'm an educational supervisor. Um, yeah. So uh, that would be the kind of run of it. Uh, on call um, would be uh, a about a one in five uh, basis um, uh, and I would be doing a, a second on call so there'd be another consultant who would be first on and I would be helping out if things got busy yeah um, and what we try and do is 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 when it's been particularly busy if people have been up at night they have the day off the next day um, yeah currently under COVID things have slowed down we stopped transplanting in march we reopened in july um, but our transplant program is fairly limited at the moment yeah um, so we we are transplanting low-risk people uh, and we're hoping to start expanding back towards normality if we don't get a second surge so we're waiting to see what happens there amazing um, um, just, just an, an interesting, interesting point, point, Professor Mamoudou, actually, actually uh, a part, part of your, your firm, firm in third, third year of medical, medical school, um, part, part of the unit. unit. <laughs> yeah. I remember you, you, you came in um, to introduce yourself, and I don't remember if you remember Peter, you had him as your reg. Um, so we were there, and we were like, everyone was in awe, and then <laughs> this is, I want to see if it's true. So you introduced yourself and kind of told us to look after ourselves, and you left the room. And, and then, then there was a rumor going around the time you went to the to the mountains of india and that's where you learned transplant surgery and no one was to mess with you is that true <laughs> did you go to the mountains of india to learn transplant surgery and you lived a very uh, a nomadic life i just want to find out i've been dying to ask you yeah i, I think this has clearly been embellished uh, over the years no I, I i am a i am a climber so i did i did go to uh, nepal to do some climbing in the Himalaya, but I didn't do any transplant surgery then. <laughs> um, I, um, what, what, what I did do overseas in terms of transplantation, I spent um, a month in uh, Minnesota um, mm. looking at the pancreas transplant program. So we transplant pancreases as well as kidneys. 
Um, mm -hmm. And at that time, back in 2002, uh, David Sutherland, who, who ran that unit, was the world expert um, on pancreas transplantation and, and had really established it um, as, a, uh, as, a, as a specialty. Um, so I spent some time with him uh, and I spent some time in India uh, looking at robotic transplants, which I'll come back to later. But one thing I would say to your listeners, um, one thing I learned from from David Sutherland, uh, I remember asking him and saying, okay, back in the 70s, when you started pancreas transplantation, what was it like? And he said, yeah, well, I remember being in theatre, having sent for the patient and the patient wasn't coming. And I said to the, the scrub nurse, have you sent for the the patient and she said yeah hours ago so I went up to the ward and the bed was empty and it turned out that his colleagues had come to see the patient and said if you stay here you'll die because they thought this pancreas transplantation was just crazy and risky and so the patient had run off home and that was what oh, he wow. had to deal with from his yeah. from his colleagues um, and he persisted um, and he was a, an incredibly persistent man um, and, and wouldn't give up. Um, and he was really the person who was responsible world, worldwide for establishing it as a safe and effective procedure, which has made a huge difference to thousands of people's lives. So that was a lesson I learned from him. And I would, I would sort of send that lesson on to some of your listeners. Um, yeah. Be prepared to struggle and things don't always come easily absolutely agree with that i think that they'll they'll be very powerful words especially for some of our listeners who are having to sit a lot of exams right now especially um especially through this covid era and a lot of them are a bit worried about their mrcs and mrcp and medical school exams as well mm. um well, thank you what struggles have you faced in your career um professor in introducing units introducing these various programs what would you say were particularly difficult moments in your career? Well, I mean, the, 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 there have been many. I mean, the, initially, as I said, I, I couldn't get into medical school. And, um, yeah, no. you know, and then when I came back from, from working overseas, um, that was considered, you know, not really on. Um, you know, it was considered a sign of not really being interested so I had to struggle to get into surgical training. And then when I took up my consultant job, um, there were a number of new things that, that I introduced. So um, laparoscopic donor nephrectomy, we weren't doing. Um, I introduced that in 2003, I think it was. Um, antibody incompatible transplantation in 2004. Um, and, and a number of other things along the way, HIV, positive transplant recipients transplanting those um, and I think what I've learned is um, that people often find it difficult uh, when they're faced with very significant change um, yeah and in those days I think I was probably a lot more impatient than I am now um, <laughs> what I've realized is that you you do need persistence you do need to drive it through um you do need to keep going even though people are telling you it's nonsense um you need to try and bring as many people with you as possible and that can be very difficult because people 
often aren't interested and there will be some who just will not come along that journey and they will do everything in their power to put obstacles in your way um, yeah. and sometimes that becomes personal because um, people um, see someone doing something different and new um, and maybe they've thought yeah I, I, I've been thinking about that but I, I haven't done it um, uh, and then then you get personal frictions so I think what what you have to do is you have to try and not make it personal and you have to realize that that when people perhaps sometimes are um, making things difficult or, or not being particularly pleasant um, you just have to see it as part of the game um, and 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 just keep going and try and do it in a way that that brings as many with you as possible there's a there's a fantastic book by somebody called Thomas Starzl mm -hmm. puzzle people and Thomas Starzl is considered in transplant circles as the main person for transplantation um, he introduced so many new things um, in the history of transplantation um, he, he died a few years ago but his, his book which is an autobiography um, describes very similar struggles uh, similar to those that David Sutherland described and um, you know he had all the nephrologists in the area got together and wrote a letter to the local board of surgery saying you've got to take this this surgeon off your books because he's a lunatic um, oh, wow. and you know he he is responsible for so much in transplantation liver transplantation um, wouldn't have happened without him so many other things um, so these are things that you would expect um, along the way in any journey where you're innovating in any in, in any specialty really um, I, I wanted to ask a question particularly around robotics um, so you were the first person to perform the um, first robotic donor nephrectomy in the UK what was the sort of initial reaction like to when first robotics was mentioned um, and then introducing it into the concept of uh, a doing a nephrectomy in the UK and what do you think the future holds for robotics and surgery? So robotics really started to take off in the early 2000s. Um, when I say take, take off, I mean, um, that was when we first saw robots coming in to hospitals, um, but it was still pretty uncommon at that time. Um, the, so we did the first donor nephrectomy back in, I think it was 2004, 2005, which was not long after we started the laparoscopic program. So we'd gone from yeah. open donors. Um, and remember, these are people who are volunteering for an operation that they don't need. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, in, when I worked in Glasgow, we used to excise the 12th rib. Um, you know, th this, this was a really painful operation. We, we moved to laparoscopic. Some people said, that's really stupid. What's the point of that? Um, and then we tried robotic donors back in, in, in the sort of early 2000s. Um, people also said, that's a very stupid thing to do. Um, we didn't really persist with it at the time because we thought it, it, 
we weren't convinced that it um, it offered more than the laparoscopic procedure. Mm -hmm. But actually, recently we've changed our minds on that, and we've restarted a donor nephrectomy, robotic donor nephrectomy program, and that's partly because robotic skills and 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 the way in which we use the robot has developed over the years, along with um, the robot itself and the way it works. And then robotic transplantation, um, uh, we started uh, just a few years ago. Um, and again, um, many people said and still say um, it's, it, it's a waste of time, it's pointless. Um, we had a debate at the British Transplant Society uh, between myself and, and, and another surgeon from another hospital, a very good natured debate, but um, it's, it, it, the criticisms were essentially you know, it's an expensive waste of time. You just, it's just boys with their toys. Um, it's dangerous. <laughs> we shouldn't do it. We've got a perfectly good operation with very high success rates. Um, and these are all reasonable criticisms, but it's exactly what people said when we started laparoscopic donor nephrectomies. Exactly. They're exactly yeah. the same criticisms. And laparoscopic donor nephrectomy is, is the standard of care now. For, for donor operations um, there are very very few open donors and, and we haven't done an open donor nephrectomy for uh, many many years at, at, at uh, guys yeah. um, so I think for for the recipients um, we're still um, we're still sort of or we were still on our learning curve um, uh, and it wasn't something that we were using for everybody. We were using it in selected patients to build up our experience uh, before COVID. Um, but I think what's really exciting in my view is that I think robotics is, is now about to explode. And um, again, if I take you back to laparoscopy, um, you know, laparoscopy started in gynecology and, and no one really paid attention to it in surgery. Um, yeah. And then in the 90s, we started doing laparoscopic cholecystectomies. Mm. And then by the end of the 90s, we were using it for lots and lots of different things. Um, and I think what's happened with robotics is we've started, people started using it mainly in urology because it was useful to get down into the pelvis and do those operations down there. And then over the last 15 years or so, um, other specialties have started adopting it and it's become more widespread and the availability of robots has increased as more and more hospitals have bought them. They're expensive pieces of kit, so it's been difficult. There are still many hospitals without a robot. But what's, what's about to happen now is that um, a whole new generation of robots are appearing. Um, yeah. There's one in, developed by a group in Cambridge uh, a British company and um, that's appearing. I think Edinburgh may have the first one already uh, and I think we're due to hopefully get one. Um, it's a much cheaper robot and there are others being developed by Ethicon, by Google, which are close to being marketed. Um, and they will provide less bulky systems, cheaper systems and potentially systems um, that work better. So, so one of the big challenges is the lack of 
haptic feedback, so you can't actually feel what the instrument is feeling, but newer yeah. systems may start to have that. So I th think in the coming five years, we're going to see robotics taking over a lot of what we do laparoscopically um, and, and indeed um, expanding into areas where it hasn't been used um, or where lapros laparoscopy hasn't been used um, because it's been too difficult. Um, so I would say if you're, if you're a surgeon pretty much in any specialty, um, I, I would advise getting involved in robotics at an early stage because I think that's the future. Um, and I think one of the other aspects that goes along with that is um, artificial intelligence because um, as many people will know that that is encroaching into medicine in a number of different ways and I think more and more we're going to see systems um, that are semi-automated where the machine is actually doing things that um, that, that we can't do um, and there are already systems in ophthalmology for example in neurosurgery that do that and do it much better than, than humans can do. Mm -hmm. Professor I was gonna say um, it's amazing the the uptake of robotics tech and AI but as a surgeon who kind of you know there are surgeons that love making the incision kind of love having their hands filled organ is it the same feeling do you still feel like you are a surgeon when you're sitting you know, a few paces away from the surgeon, is robotic surgery the same experience and same thrill you get as if you were to kind of operate using a scalpel? I'm not too sure if the question makes sense, but I've always wondered, does it take back from surgery? Yeah, no, that's that. That's a very reasonable point. Um, uh, I, I think it feels different, but I think that's okay. Um, and again, if you, if you go back to the laparoscopic donor, um, mm -hmm operation going from a, an open incision to a laparoscopic procedure I, I don't miss doing the open procedure um, mm. and I feel it's a more delicate operation in many ways a more satisfying operation to do it laparoscopically and and I think as time goes on um, with robotic transplants um, uh, we'll probably feel the same way I think at the moment when you're doing it you're concentrating so hard you, you're just sort of thinking about the next time and hoping that you know everything's going to go okay. And I think it probably will be when, when uh, you know, when you've you've reached your plateau, um, uh, and and you're feeling comfortable with the operation. That's the time when you you, you maybe take a step back and um, and think about the open operation again. But th there will always be open surgery. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. there will, you know, there's always going to be, uh, at least, you know, for the foreseeable future, there's always going to be open operations that need to be done. Definitely. Um, Professor, we're coming towards the end and I wanted to ask you, you've had such a distinguished career with many accolades. What would you say is one of your, your highlights um, in your whole career from the day you went to med school to graduating to doing the first robotic surgery? What is the highlights so far i think it's it's there i think there are two things the so i run the antibody incompatible program and and there have been several patients um who were on the waiting list for a long long time over 10 years mm. um and we were able to um 
to get them into our program and transplant them. And the, I mean, we've, this is a difficult field. We've had a number of patients who haven't done well, but the difference that it made to those patients, I think has been, um, has been absolutely fantastic. And seeing them over the years, seeing them um, uh, change their life completely um, has, been, has been incredibly rewarding. Um, so I think clinically that's probably stands out even more than robotics. Um, yeah. But the other thing that I think um, has satisfied me most is nurturing uh, junior surgeons. And uh, yeah. Yeah. what's happened in, generally speaking, in our unit, people leave and say, that was a fantastic job. Um, you know, it's one of the best or the best jobs I've ever had. And and I think they they feel that because they feel they're looked after, um, they're mm -hmm. trained. Um, we take an interest not just in their clinical skills, but in their career as a whole. Um, we advise them and we try and nurture them and move them on. And, and, and I know that that stays with them for a long time. And I know that, you know, I can remember the people when I was a trainee um, who, who were sort of mentors. Um, so that I think is, is immensely satisfying. And that's not just me. That's, that's a group of us in the unit. That's the culture that we established. And I think um, that more than anything else, I think is, 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 is one of the most satisfying things because that, then affects people for, for generations to come, potentially. Absolutely. Professor Mahmood, I think you should know that um, from our time when we were in your firm, your mentorship, and then which passed down into your juniors, which then sort of uh, fed into the medical students, a lot of our colleagues, we know a good batch of them who are pursuing surgery and who are particularly pursuing vascular slash transplant. And they always do say, Professor Mahmood's firm at Guys was what what swayed me into that field um, and they always say that colla that collaborative team atmosphere they seem like a team they they support each other um, we've all we've witnessed that personally and and we can see the effects it's had on a lot of our colleagues as well um, who will be coming who will be becoming transplant surgeons in the future hopefully what advice would you give to us juniors um, whether we're medics or aspiring surgeons um, in terms of what we should look to in the future, um, how we sort of, I've noticed that you're very um, innovative and you're very accepting of change and bringing forth change. When I was reading into your bio and looking at the um, blood group incompatible um, transplantation program, um, the high risk living donor programs and the robotics, it all sort of um, highlighted the fact that you're very keen on looking into the future, looking into the cha changes that will come and embracing that for better outcomes. Um, so what sort of advice would you pass on to us juniors? My advice would be um, be true to yourself and, and don't give up. And, yeah. and by that I mean um, get yourself into a career and, and a job that you enjoy. No job is going to be perfect. Whatever you do, there's going to be ups and downs. Um, but don't end up drifting into something because people tell you that's what you should do or it's expected yeah. of you or whatever. You know, don't be scared to say, 
do you know what? Uh, I, I'm changing my mind. I, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to switch specialty. Um, don't be scared of trying to organize your job to suit you uh, and your lifestyle and, and get yeah. your balance between the things that are important for you and the work. And don't give up. Um, you know, whatever you want to do, um, if you want to innovate or if you want to do research or if you want to teach or, you know, whatever it is that, that, that excites you, um, if you keep going, you will get there. Um, it can be hard work. And, and I think it's important um, to understand that if, if you want to get stuff done, there are going to be times when you've got to work hard. But yeah. that doesn't have to be all the time. And it's important to keep a balance between your work and the rest of your life. Um, and the people that I've seen who are happiest are the ones who don't work all the time, but do have that balance. So yeah. I think those are the things that I would say. Um, and I, I guess the other thing is that when you look around, it seems as though everybody's fine and everyone's doing well and everyone's happy. And that's not true. Um, yeah. There are lots of things that are going on all the time um, with with most people, um, whether they're personal difficulties, whether it's work difficulties, uh, whatever it is. So when you experience your own difficulties, which you inevitably will, um, don't think whiny. Just think, well, I was expecting this to come along at some point. I was expecting something difficult to happen. Um, and you just keep going and you'll get through it. Definitely. Amazing. Thank I you. I think that was amazing advice. And it was it's quite fascinating for us to hear the story from the beginning. It's very easy to kind of see a snapshot of your career, but we never realise the difficulties you face, especially, you know, from being rejected from medical school, kind of going on your journeys. It's been an immense pleasure, Professor, for kind of inviting you down and you taking the time out to, to speak to us. It's inspired us both for definite and I'm yeah. sure it will continue to inspire our listeners. I wish you even more success, Professor, and I know I'm going to be seeing even more great things. Um, but we want to thank you and we also want to thank our listeners. It's been a pleasure, Professor. I don't know what to say. I think yeah. we, we need to meet in person and, and get to catch up and know each other a bit better. But it has really, really been a pleasure for us. So thank you. Thank you so much. No, it's been my pleasure. Come in and see a transplant next time we're doing one. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.